Welcome to a talk from St. Saviour's Sunbury. We hope that it blesses you. <laughs> You're a feisty lot this morning, aren't you? That's good. I like a feisty crowd. Normally when somebody else is speaking. But there we go. Good. So my name is Guy, and it's great to have the opportunity to speak to you this morning. This week, uh, I read a blog by a guy called Joshua Luke Smith. And uh, Joshua Luke Smith is a uh, writer, musician, singer. He's also a pastor. And he said this. He said, you know, increasingly every day when I awake in the morning, I am struck by the madness in the world that we live. He said, in all the feeds on social media, the stuff I look at on the TV, the stuff I hear on the radio, um, the stuff I read, I am flooded um, by stories that could break my heart, he says. Stories of families torn apart, of disease, of destruction, of stories of my own family in pain um, and in distress. You know, you probably read that kind of stuff. I certainly do too. You know, I can read stuff of successful people who are enjoying their success and who many in their own admission admit that they are completely lost. But Joshua Luke Smith goes on to say that when we face those moments, when we face those moments of our lives, of our days, of our hours, of our minutes, um, if we give hope the last word, then everything that we are and everything that we do becomes really important. Because whether you are somebody who's walked in here for the first time and this is a strange place to you, or whether this is a very familiar type of place to you, to somebody, somewhere, you look like hope. You sound like hope. You will be hope. And what's, what's at the foundation of this hope? Well, it's who we are. It's who we are. And that speaks to our identity. And that's what, as Ron said, we're looking at this morning. So I have two questions for you this morning. Can you handle two questions? Excellent. This is good news. You look like a bunch that can handle more than one question. I'm just checking. Good. Two questions for you. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? And the second question is, can you be who you are every day? Can you be who you are every day? So I'm going to read a passage uh, from the book, from the Bible, uh, to see what God's got to say about this. So I'm going to read from Psalm 139, Spoken by David a little over a thousand years before Jesus was born, just after he'd become king of Israel. And this is what God had to say through him. Oh, it's up there. Excellent. You get sound and vision today. So, you ready? Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know me when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. 
Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offense in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Great stuff. You'll probably need to read that a couple of times yourselves in your own time. So I once met a man called Henry J.M. Noyen, and I have probably mispronounced his name if you've heard of him. Uh, Henry J.M. Noyen was uh, a Dutch guy. He was originally from Holland, and he moved to the U.S. where he lived most of his adult life. And Henry Noyen... Uh, was a very gifted guy, and his particular field of expertise was, I guess, academia. He was in education. He became a professor of theology. And he spent more than 20 years as a professor of theology at the American universities of Yale and Harvard. So we are talking kind of the Oxford-Cambridge of the U.S. This guy was a smart guy who was respected and valued in his field. He wrote many books and articles. He was invited to speak uh, at all kinds of occasions. After more than 20 years at Harvard, uh, Henry left Harvard, and he moved to a place just outside Toronto, Canada, where he joined uh, the Larsh Daybreak community. And the Larsh Daybreak community was a community who had been founded with the express intent of creating a place where adults with mental disabilities could live a fulfilled life in a place of security. And that is where Henry went after all his years in academia. And as Henry described himself in this booklet that I read, which he wrote in 1989, uh, and he died shortly afterwards, a few years later in September 1996, 
Henry said, after all those years, it was when I arrived at the last daybreak community that I truly rediscovered my identity. It was there that I found out who I was. Because from day one, something very simple but very profound happened to Henry. Because you see, all his newfound friends, pretty much none of them could read. So none of them had read any of Henry's books or his articles. And frankly, they didn't care. They were completely irrelevant. And pretty much none of his newfound friends had ever been to school, let alone college. And so words like Yale and Harvard meant nothing to them. It was completely irrelevant. And in fact, no longer was it about how many people took Henry seriously, because pretty much nobody took him seriously. And he found this out on day one. And this is the bit of the story that makes me slightly nervous sharing with people like you, because he would speak in small groups and slightly larger groups like this. But Henry's newfound friends did not apply the normal rules of social etiquette that he'd been so used to. Henry would start speaking, and virtually as soon as he starts speaking, quite often a friend he came to know called Bill would stand up and say, Henry, are you nearly finished? <laughs> and then somebody else would stand up and say, Henry, will you play ball with us this afternoon as you did yesterday? He would deal with these, Henry, what's for dinner tonight? And so on and so forth. And from day one, what his newfound friends forced him to do was to let go of everything. Let go of everything. And this amazingly talented theologian was constantly taken back to one particular scripture, one particular bit of the Bible, which sort of rescued him and which helped him rediscover his identity. And that passage in the Bible, that for a man who had read every book in the Bible several times, God kept taking him back to Psalm 139, the one we've just read. And there were four verses in particular that Henry said he finally came to understand in a personal way. So I'm just going to read them back to you. Verse 13 to about verse 16. And I'm just going to personalize them in the way that they were personalized for Henry. For God created your inmost being. God knitted you together in your mother's womb. We here today praise God because we know we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That God's works are wonderful because you are God's works. We know that full well and that your frame, your frame was not hidden from God when you were made in the secret place when you were woven together in the depths of the earth. God's eyes 
saw your unformed body. And all the days ordained for you, all the days that are given to you, were written in God's book before one of them came to be. See, Henry came to know what I hope you and I can grasp, which is that God made him, and God knows him, and God knows you intimately. And from that day, Henry decided that that heart of God that had been placed in him, that heart of God that's been placed in you, Henry would be that heart of God to the people in his newfound community. Today is not the day when I can tell you stories of the adventures that God led Henry on with his newfound friends. But another way of looking at this is Henry discovered what I think most of you know, but there's nothing new under the sun, so it's worth repeating. Henry had come to realize in letting everything go that you are not what you do. I'm not saying that what you do is not important. We need diligent, capable bus drivers, truck drivers, teachers, nurses, carers, whether paid or unpaid. But your job is not who you are. And the one thing I can promise you is that one day, somebody will take your job away. It may be because somebody decides that your job doesn't exist anymore. It may be that somebody decides that your job is going to be moved to a place that you cannot go. Or it may simply be that the passage of time leads to a point where it's right that you hand over your job to the generation to come. But one day, somebody will take your job away. You are not what you do. And as a youngster once said, you are not a human doing. You are a human being. Do you know who you are? You are made by God. God knows you intimately. But then that points us in the direction of the second question that I posed at the beginning. But can you be who you are every day? Can you be who you are every day? Because the other thing that Henry realized is who you are is not a one-time decision. Who you are is not a one-time decision. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, I can make a big announcement to you today, and I can announce that I, Guy, have decided that I am going to be a kind person. And you may say, thank you very much, Guy, for your big announcement. We are very happy for you. Does it make me a kind person? No, it doesn't. <laughs> you will find out if I am a kind person if you come and spend some time with me. Who you are is not a one-time decision. In fact, I can know Jesus. I can accept Jesus. Does it make me a follower of Jesus? No, it doesn't. Because those one-time decisions are important. It's quite helpful if I decide to be a kind person but it doesn't make me a kind person. So one of the other things that Henry realized was this. 
that actually every day, every hour, every person you come across, every situation you find yourself in, every circumstance that comes your way, you not only have to decide what you are going to do, but you have to decide what sort of person you are going to be. And it is the cumulative result of all those decisions that you make that makes you a certain kind of person, that determines who you are, that defines your identity. And the responsibility for those decisions is yours, as indeed I am responsible for my own decisions. The decisions that determine who you are are in your own hands, and you and I have to take responsibility for them. So as you think about that, I want to take you to a library in New York City in 1939, and I want, to try and, I want you to picture a man called John Blanford as he sits at a table and as he reads a book that has captured his imagination and he's flicking through the pages. And I just want you to think about the cumulative impact of the decisions that we make and how they make us a particular kind of person, how they define who we are. So John Blanford is flicking through the pages of this book, a book he's come to love. And having flicked through a number of the pages, he notices that in the margins, there's some beautiful handwriting written in pencil, some comments about the book. He finds the comments interesting, sometimes humorous. He finds them stimulating. And as he turns the page and turns the page, he finds more comments. And eventually, towards the end of the book, he sees a little notation where there is a name and a street name, Hollis Maynell. So John decides to write to Hollis. He doesn't know whether the address is correct or whether he's quite understood it correctly, but he writes to Hollis Maynell. And she writes back. And he writes back again. And so a correspondence begins. But it's 1939, and the war comes, and John is called to go and serve in the army in Europe. He writes to Hollis Maynell, Hollis, I have to go to serve in the army. Is it okay if I continue to write to you? She writes back, yes, that will be fine. He goes to Europe, and he carries on writing. And after three or four months of exchanging letters, he writes to Hollis to say, Hollis, could you send me a photograph? I would love to be able to picture you. Hollis writes back, no, no. If you really care for me, it won't matter what I look like. And John found that rather hard, but he carried on writing. The months went by, and again, John wrote to, Hol to Hollis and said, Hollis, can you send me a photograph? I would like to remember you in person. She wrote back, no, no. If you really cared for me, it wouldn't matter what I looked like. John found that rather hard. He carried on writing. And then, after more than 11 months, the army, in their grace, gave him some leave. They gave him time to recuperate from his service in the military. So John wrote 
to Hollis. I'm coming home to New York. Will you meet me? She wrote back. Yes. It was a short letter. He replied, I will be at New York Central Station on Christmas Eve at 6 o'clock. I will hold the book that I first, where I first met you in the library back in 39. I will hold it above my head so you can recognize me. How will I recognize you? Hollis wrote back. I will wear a red rose in my left lapel. See you at 6, New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve. So the day came, and John walked into the main concourse, quite in love with this woman who he'd never met before, and he held the book above his head in the busy concourse. And suddenly, as he was standing there, it was as if the crowd parted, and through the crowd coming towards him came this most beautiful woman, blonde hair. She was dressed in green. She walked with poise and purpose, and for John, it was as if springtime had come early. He was quite captivated. He so wanted to follow her, and as she walked past him, she wriggled her hips, looked him in the eye, and said, Hey, soldier, are you coming my way? And John was so captivated, he failed to notice that she wasn't wearing a red rose in her lapel, and he moved to follow her because he was desperate to follow her. And then out of the corner of his eye, he saw the woman with the red rose in her left lapel. She was much older than he had thought she would be. She had a little round hat pulled over her ears to keep the cold out. She had little round glasses, flat shoes, and a sensible brown coat. And she carried a silver-tipped cane just to steady her when she walked. And John looked at the woman in green as she took a stride away from him, but he thought to himself in that moment, no, this woman who I can see, Hollis, with her sensible brown shoes and her sensible overcoat, she has sustained me in the hardship of the war years when I've been alone. This won't be romance, but it may be something more significant. So without hesitation, he took a stride in the opposite direction to the direction of the lady with the green dress. He walked over to the woman. He put out his hand and he introduced him saying, hello, you must be Hollis Maynor. I have waited for this moment. I am so delighted to meet you. My name is John Blanford. Would you do me the honor of coming to dinner with me? The lady smiled and looked up at John and looked him in the eye. She said, there are many things in this world that I do not understand, and there are many things I do not know, but one thing I can tell you is, my name is not Hollis Maynard. <laughs> but what I can tell you is, that woman dressed in green who just walked past you begged me to wear this red rose in my left lapel, and she said, if John Blandford should happen to come over, introduce himself, and ask me for dinner, I was to tell you that you'll be sitting at a table in that restaurant over there, across the road. She wished him well, and left. 
got a hope from that story, you will grasp that the cumulative impact of the decisions we make creates the sort of person that we are, defines your identity. So, know that God made you. God knows you intimately, and he has placed his heart in your heart. And then know that the decisions that will determine who you are are in your own hands. God bless you. For more information about St. Saviour's, please visit www.saintsaviorsunbury.org.uk